Take that! This is Hunting Humbug 101 with me, Theo Clark. This is a rebroadcast of an original episode first recorded with my father, Jeff Clark. Welcome to Hunting Humbug 101 with me, Theo Clark, and after a two-week absence, I'm back again with my father, Jeff. G'day, Dad. How are you? Hi, Theo. Good, thanks. In the podcast, we're going to look at the fallacy burden of proof, uh, and we'll start off as usual with a reading from the book, and we've got a lot of different examples to look at today, so it's probably going to be a pretty long one, so buckle yourself in, but after a two-week absence, and I've got to say I've been feeling pretty guilty about not doing one last week. Uh, away we go with the burden of proof. The other terms and all related concepts that we use, the burden of proof, onus of proof, appeal to ignorance. Description. The burden of proof fallacy is a common rhetorical trick employed in debating in other public forums. It takes place when the advocate claims that the opponent needs to prove his or her case. Further, if he or she cannot prove the case, then, by default, the advocate's case is made. The situation is deliberately distorted to tip the balance in favour of the advocate. In discussions about the burden of proof fallacy, in articles and books on the subject, a particular example is invariably given. An atheist advocate makes the claim that the absence of proof for the existence of God is the same as proof of absence. Example. Peter Fantickler is the official spokesperson for the provisional wing of the Skeptic Society hyper-rationalist faction. In an effort to provide compelling evidence that God doesn't exist, he sets up an experiment to test intercessory prayer. He has an agreement from several local churches to have their congregations pray for the recovery of half the heart patients scheduled for bypass surgery in the local teaching hospital. He ensures that the patients are randomly selected for treatment and control groups and that they do not have any knowledge of which group they are allocated to. When the results are collated, he writes a first draft of a media release which states inter alia, The outcomes for patients in the two groups was comparable. This demonstrates there is no God. After some critical feedback on his draft from more moderate sceptics, he changes the wording of the claim to This demonstrates that if there is a God, he has no interest in humanity and does not answer prayer. Comment Unlike most atheists, Peter has taken up the burden of proof of the non-existence of God. It's usually the other way around. Atheists tend to put the burden of proof on believers, viz. You can't prove that God exists, therefore he doesn't exist. However, Peter has come up against the usual problem when the burden of proof is accepted. He can't prove a negative. There is simply no way the design of the prayer study could provide could prove the non-existence of God. The failure of intercessory prayer could be due to the non-existence of God, or it could be because God doesn't answer prayer, or it could be because God is the one who decides whether or not he answers prayer. It's axiomatic that if there is an all-powerful, omniscient being, he has free will and an agenda of his own. To the dedicated debunker, Peter's study has only shown that if there is a God who does answer prayer, working premise, 
is not a compliant automaton who slavishly follows orders from human beings. When any proposition, e.g. aliens visit the earth to observe us, indigenous people are more spiritual, problems in life are due to events of past lives, dreams are a form of astral travel, can't be disproved, it doesn't mean that the proposition is therefore proved. To claim that it does is to employ the burden of proof fallacy. It is perfectly appropriate for each of two parties to a dispute to ask for compelling evidence from the other person to support his or her case. This is scepticism in action. The problem only arises when the advocate takes the position that his or her own case is necessarily made if the opponent's case cannot be made. Okay, so that was um, an example of, uh, sorry, that was burden of proof in the book. Um, and so just a general quick you know, point about that is essentially the, the main thing to have from there is the people who are, are burdened with the proof are those who are making the claim. So if you're making a claim for something, then it's your job to provide the evidence for it. And so we're going to look at some examples that are where people are making the burden of proof fallacy and then also where people are correctly identifying who has the burden of proof. If I can just make a general comment too on the burden of proof, I think um, with um, postmodernist ideas, they sort of um, unleash the genie on burden of proof because there's this kind of um, view in some some branches of postmodernist thought that one person's view of reality is as valid as anyone else's. So in a way that's a licence to just say, well, this is my version of reality, I think it's what life really is, and it's up to you to prove it if it's not. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so the first example uh, we're going to have a listen to is actually from a DVD I got sent to me on intelligent design. It's called Unlocking the Mysteries of Life, and there is a mildly amusing backstory to this, uh, which is when I was teaching science, I contacted this group that was selling this DVD in Australia, and I said, hey, I'm a science teacher. Send me this DVD for free. And then they said, no, it'll cost you $20, which, of course, I ignored. Then about two months later in the post, rocked up the copy of the DVD, and then I got a phone call from them about a week later saying, would you like to buy them at $5 a pop to give to your senior students when they graduate high school, to which I politely declined. Needless to say, I pointed out, no, I bought it just to have a good laugh. However, I have never actually managed to sit through the entire thing because it gets me a bit angry. Um, but in the, in, the, in the spirit of trying to find the burden of proof fallacy, which is the whole intelligent design argument, um, I have now edited out a bit of a clip. Um, so we'll have a listen to the clip from Unlocking the Mysteries of Life, all about irreducible complexity right now. Michael Behe published a book titled Darwin's Black Box. In it, he argued that natural selection, Darwin's designer substitute, could not explain the origin of the bacterial flagellum or any other irreducibly complex biological system. Instead, Behe concluded that the integrated complexity of these systems pointed to intelligent design. 
Irreducible complexity was coined by Mike Behe in describing these molecular machines. Basically what it says is that you have multi-component parts to any given organelle or system in a cell, all of which are necessary for function. That is, if you remove one part, you lose function of that system. The idea of irreducible complexity can be illustrated by a familiar non-biological machine, a mousetrap. The trap is composed of five basic pieces. A catch to hold the bait. A strong spring. A thin bent rod called the hammer. A holding bar to secure the hammer in place. And a platform upon which the entire system is mounted. If any one of these parts is missing or defective, the mechanism will not work. All components of this irreducibly complex system must be present simultaneously for the machine to perform its function, catching mice. Irreducible complexity also applies to biological machines, including the bacterial flagellar motor. In evolutionary terms, you have to be able to explain how you can build this system gradually when there's no function until you have all those parts in place. The irreducible complexity of molecular machines poses a severe challenge to the power of natural selection. Could Darwin's small favorable variations have produced a bacterial flagellum? Some scientists doubt the possibility. How could something new, like a bacteria flagellar motor and all the components that go with it, how could it develop out of a population of bacteria that don't have that system? When each change, according to Darwin's theory, has to provide some kind of advantage. Imagine such a scenario early in the Earth's history. An evolving bacterium somehow develops a tail and perhaps even the pieces necessary to attach it to the cell wall. Yet without a complete motor assembly, this innovation would provide no advantage to the cell. Instead, the tail would lie immobile and useless, invisible to natural selection, which by definition can only favor changes that aid survival. The logic of natural selection is very demanding. Unless the flagellum mechanism is completely assembled and actually works, natural selection simply cannot preserve it. It cannot be passed on to the next generation. The important thing to realize about natural selection is it selects only for a functional advantage. In most cases, natural selection actually eliminates things, things that have no function or that have a function that harms the organism. So if you had a bacterium with a tail that didn't function as a flagellum, chances are natural selection would eliminate it. The only way you can select for a flagellum is if you have a flagellum that works, and that means you have to have all the pieces of the motor in place to begin with. So natural selection can't get you the bacterial flagellum. It can only work after the flagellum. Okay, so that was from the fantastic uh, documentary, inverted commas around fantastic and documentary, um, uh, The Mysteries of Life, uh, The Intelligent Design, uh, Unlocking the Mysteries of Life. Now, 
just before we move on to the actual burden of proof fallacy that they employ, um, and some of the fallacies too, there are some actual errors in fact. Uh, the first thing is they need to talk about uh, natural selection. Um, they don't talk about, you know, things like random genetic drift and gene flow and all those other kinds of things as well. Um, there's an expe- the specific example they talk about, uh, the bacterial flagella, and then the example, the, the analogy with the mouse trap. Um, you can explain them through what's called co-option, so where it evolved for another reason and then it got co-opted into um, a different thing. Now, in the DVD, they do talk about that and say that, well, the version people have proposed doesn't explain it, but it's moved. There's been a paper I know as, as recent as 2006 explaining it with more detail. Um, but the best analogy is the one with the mousetrap and where Behe in his book, as I read Darwin's Black Box um, when I was studying at uni, and he talked about you know, a mousetrap, you take it one bit and the whole mousetrap doesn't work, so it couldn't evolve gradually. Um, so at the Dover trial, um, there was a recent one in 2006, um, Kenneth Miller, one of the biologists, came in with a mousetrap that he'd taken out the, um, the latch on off, so it was permanently closed, and he was using it as a tie clip. So he walked in with his tie clip down by it, as an example of how you can co-opt it for a different purpose, even though I was missing it, um, which was, which was gold. Um, and it, look, I don't know enough of the biology to, to know how, you know, valid those critiques are in general. Um, but, but yeah, they, they basically, the other thing they talk about is unless there's an advantage, it won't get selected for. But evolution doesn't just work on selecting advantages. It gets rid of things that have a disadvantage. And so as long as there's no, um, so I'm like, have they even done any biology? Like talk to my appendix or my gallbladder. You know, I can survive without them. So if, if, if you were born without one of those, you wouldn't, you'd still survive and reproduce and pass on that gene that doesn't have it. So unless there's a, a specific disadvantage that's, you know, important enough, it can still be selected, well, it can still be passed on anyway. Um, so there's just so many, fu- uh, um, so many factual things where they're just wrong. Um, and so I'm like, either they're ignorant or they're liars or possibly they're both. Yeah, just another point I'd make there is... Um uh, the other thing is that these these things that supposedly were useless at the time when they first evolved, um, that is um, a, a structure on the way to being something useful in the present. We don't know what conditions in the past prevailed, so it might well be that uh, something that looks to us useless in the present day on a particular organism uh, might in fact have been very useful at a certain time in the past. And uh, when you mentioned the appendix... Mm. Um, if you look at the appendix on a koala, for example, because of the nature of its food and so yeah. on, um, it's absolutely essential. It has a huge appendix, yep, that huge appendix. And um, uh, whereas our appendix um, would have had a function at some stage, but it's not a function that uh, we need in the present uh, day and age. Mm. Yeah, I mean, they still might confer some slight advantage, but not enough that, that it's a disadvantage in terms of by the time you reach reproductive age, you know, if it, if it causes you problems when you're in your 40s and 50s, you've reproduced by then anyway, so it doesn't matter, it'll still get passed on. Um, yeah, and, and the other thing, let's look at specifically the burden of proof, and which is why all the intelligent design arguments are flawed, and they have been flawed since they've been around anyway, they've been around for a long time. Um, let's say for the sake of argument, grant them that you can't explain those particular systems they look at irreducibly complex through natural selection. Now, they're making, if they're saying, if you can't prove natural selection did it, then it must be my theory 
First of all, it's a false dichotomy because they're saying there's only a choice between those two theories. So how do we know there isn't some kind of third option out there? Fourth or fifth? But second of all, they need to actually give some positive evidence for their theory for us to accept it. Otherwise, the, the most we say is, well, we just don't know how that evolved or how that came to be. So unless they give some kind of positive evidence as to how this happened, so you know, provide a mechanism or provide the detailed steps as, as how that came to be, and saying some invisible magic thing did it is, is not, then it's simply not doing science. It's basically it's what I call giving up. Um, so, yeah, so, so that's certainly the burden of proof by saying that if you can't, if, if, if evolution can't explain it, therefore my theory wins. And uh, it, it's a temptation to use the burden of proof because uh, it, it takes us back to our days in the sandbox when we were three and four years old and we'd say, nya, 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 yes. is, is, is not, is, is not. And um, I, I think if you have that image in mind of kids in a sandbox saying is, is not, is, is not, uh, that's a useful kind of metaphor to have in your own mind when you are tempted to engage in these sorts of arguments. It might be better for two protagonists uh, where there is no proof for the other side or no definitive proof, or there are holes in arguments and so on, to simply agree to disagree yeah. might be a more respectable position to take. The, um, and the other thing is, you could also point out the whole intelligent design thing is what's you know an argument from analogy, and they're saying that, and this is where the blind watchmaker or the watchmaker analogy came in initially with Paley, who's the guy who came up with the whole walking on the beach to see a watch, you'd assume it was designed. It's the same thing. Now, the analogy is, we have seen stuff that is designed, that's complex and looks like it has a function and so on in the structure, therefore, and we knew it was made by humans, therefore um, anything else that has that similar structure and function also must be made by an intelligence. But the problem is what we've seen is all artefacts that are non-living, that are complex, we can safely say have been designed by humans. So if you go to Easter Island or you see the pyramids, you know straight away that humans have lived there or some other intelligent creatures because they're non-living artefacts that we've seen. Now, and you might not even work out, like the pyramids, you might go, oh, we can't figure out how they built them. Of course, we do know how they built them. But, so you might go, oh, well, I don't know how they built them. But that doesn't mean that you then go, oh, aliens must have done it because we couldn't figure it out. That's paranoia. So the same analogy, if you want to actually use a proper analogy, the proper analogy is whenever we've seen complex biological organisms uh, that have complex interrelated parts, a lot of the time, let's say, you know, 50% of the time, we've been able to figure out how they've evolved. So every other time we come across complex structures that are biological, we can assume they've been evolved, even if we can't figure out how it's been done. Just as if we see some come across some new structure that's been built by some other um, uh, human culture, if we can't figure out how they built it, it doesn't mean we go, oh, well, they must have done it by magic or some other way, just because we can't figure it out. So un unless they provide another viable theory of, of how it happened that they can e explain how it happened, then they're simply doing what's called the God of the gaps. You know, we can't figure it out, ergo, God did it. I, I must admit to having been seized by a notion that I can't let go of now, and that is that um, the possibility that God made the pyramids mm. and aliens made humans. That's the reverse of what you said. Well, I, I, I actually thought we were all shape-shifting lizards. That's what I thought there, and we've got alien DNA in us, you know. I watched alien. Borat last night, yeah. and David uh, Icke, and uh, we know there is shape shifting. That's right, yes, <laughs> shape shifting Jews. <laughs> anyway, um, so yeah, I mean, basically, they are 
placing the burden of proof on people who who you know validate evolutionary theory. And what they say is that every time you need to explain every little detail of evolution, and any time you can't, therefore it's intelligent design. That's essentially what it is. If you can't, so it's an appeal to their own ignorance. I mean. That's the real issue here. It's they're saying, and in, in that particular clip, he basically says, I can't imagine how this could have happened. It's like, so what? Perhaps you're dumb. Perhaps you haven't been able to figure it out. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean that's not an argument for what your point of view, just because you can't see how it did. So an argument from personal incredulity or an argument, an appeal to your own personal ignorance. I'm ignorant of how this happened. Therefore, it can't have happened the way you said it, you know? Speaking of Borat, which I was a moment ago, and I, I just suddenly thought of something when um, Borat uh, walks into a, um, a happy clapper type um, Christian church and f- a fundamentalist uh, type of Christian church, and uh, the subject of evolution actually comes up in the preacher's spiel, and he says he was never a monkey, he was never a tadpole, and so on. Um, the ridiculous statements they make are so far away from what uh, evolutionary biologists mm. actually say yeah. and actually claim, and that's their technique as well, which is uh, false positioning, yeah, straw man, uh, straw man type argument, and uh, that that's worth a watch if you um, can find it on YouTube. Uh, I wouldn't recommend uh, all of Borat. <laughs> <laughs> Some of it, even I have to pass over. Okay, so now what we're going uh, to go to is an interview I conducted with um, uh, a woman uh, who has essentially um, demonstrated the burden of proof the correct way around. Her name is Sandra Quincy. Um, she's a local from Brisbane, and she uh, managed to get a sex magnet, uh, and I would say that again, a sex magnet um, for gents to put in their trouser pocket. <laughs> She managed to get it recalled and the company that did it had to put out a um, retraction saying they made unlawful claims. And she challenged them and said, well, you're making these claims, where is your evidence for it? And the way she did it uh, was basically writing a letter to our um, Complaints Commission, our Advertising Standards Commission, and they then have forced this company to retract uh, this, this product. And again, they are making a claim that this product does these certain things. So this, so the Australian uh, watchdog that looked at it said, okay, where's your evidence for it? They couldn't provide it, so they've made unlawful claims. So this is a really good example of the burden of proof being applied correctly. It's also, the reason why I wanted to talk to Sandra was it's a good example of think uh, global, act local, but in terms of scepticism in that, you know, she's just a, a normal everyday person, run of the mill person, and she got annoyed when she saw something and did something about it. And all it took her to write was one little letter, and that caused this massive embarrassment for this company. Um, they're called Century Mail. They have a mail out, and they sell this, well, sell many dodgy other products like magnetic products, but this one was the most obviously um, inane and couldn't possibly, well, almost certainly couldn't possibly work dodgy product. And so one massive, huge win for Sandra, uh, and I'll obviously put a link to all about it and some of the more of the details, but for now, let's go to my interview with Sandra. (laughs) 
Well, welcome to the podcast, Sandra Quincy. Sandra uh, is a lone sceptic, as she's just informed me. Um, she's been branded, and she has had a major, fairly major victory in terms of getting a product uh, recalled and causing great embarrassment to the company that uh, sells it. The product was called a sex magnet, and I came across it, uh, the whole story by seeing on the um, James Randi Educational Foundation blog, Swift, and uh, Dr. Harriet Hall, who's the Skeptoc, had written a blog post about Sandra's victory because Sandra sent Harriet an email. So, Sandra, welcome to the podcast. I'm very happy to be here. And I'll start off, Sandra. Why don't you tell us about uh, the email you sent to Dr. Harriet Hall because that's how I first learnt about you. Okay, well, it had been after several months I had seen an advertisement in the Century Mail leaflet that I thought was for a product that couldn't possibly work. So, so this is a leaflet that comes in Reader's Digest, was it? Or? Yes, it was a separate leaflet in a little cellophane packet, but it was included in my Reader's Digest because I have it delivered yeah. to my home. So I couldn't have got it any other way. And when I read the article, I just thought, this can't possibly work. And anyway, I spent several hours on the internet finding the right place to make a complaint to. I just decided there and then that I was going to stand up and do something about it. So this product, and I'll obviously have a link to it, but it was basically it was a, a magnet that claimed to work uh, to help you with your love life. Um, yes. And we've got the ad here, and I'll put up, obviously, a copy of that. But it actually says, uh, sex magnet, gents, enhance your libido performance by carrying this discreet magnet in your trouser pocket. The constant pulsating and deep effect of the magnetic field improves blood supply and oxygen supply for improved performance and increased potency. Sex mag magnetic chip is unbreakable, optically neutral, and specifically coated so it's hygienic and can be washed. It will be permanently magnetised and therefore will last an unlimited period of time without servicing. It can be carried as long as the user wishes. Notes, not to be used by individuals fitted with pacemakers, insulin pumps, or transdermal drug delivery patches. So pretty impressive claims. I love the pulsating magnets. They don't know much about permanent magnets, do they? No, and as a lover of magnets, because mm. I did have a science background for a while, I know that they never have to be serviced. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, I've yeah. never had one of my magnets ever fail on me. No, that's I mean, right. It yeah. just sounded... Yeah, ma- magnets can become desensitised if you rub them against another magnet over a long period of time. Yes. But at- unless you do that, not a chance. No, of course not. drop them and shatter them. That's right, yeah, yeah, bang them and stuff like that. Be violent towards them. I've, I've got some magnets that are very old because my son just adored magnets and I thought this magnet is just too good to be true. Yeah. Well, and then let alone having any physiological effects such as improved blood supply and oxygen supply. So, look, and I'm... I will uh, obviously put a bit more research into the whole background of this magnetic products, but as far as all the magnetic products go, there, there's zero evidence for any of them to do anything besides placebo. Um, and because people actually have done double-blind trials on magnets for arthritis and things like that, and there's zero evidence of their efficacy for anything beyond placebo effect, and let alone a sex magnet. That's right. I'm, I've felt the same with magnetic products. I know that if you've spent $400 on a magnetic underlay for your bed, you're going to convince yourself that it works. I mean, I've had to walk away from shopping centres that have had a display in the middle of some magnetic product because I know it just makes me so angry. And you want to warn people, but 
that old thing about a fool and his money. That's right. You can't stop them. Well, the, the podcast I did just before that, one of the things we talked about was um, investment. So it's very difficult to change your mind on something when you've invested a lot of your time or money or reputation on it. And so people, and so one of the classic things in psychology they've shown over and over again is with placebo effect, for example, the more money you spend, the more powerful the placebo. Um, and, and so that's, uh, I would certainly say the exact same thing with a product like this. Unless they can show it beyond placebo by doing a randomised double-blind trial. Yes. Well, anyway, with, I sent off my letter, and in less than a week, I got a reply back from the Complaints Resolution Panel. Yep. So who'd you send the letter off to? To the Australian... Complaints Resolution Panel, which I found on the web. Yep, so this is a good one for anyone else who's wanting to do this. You look yes. up the Australian, I'll put a link to it as well. Well, I actually sent it by snail mail. Yep. I went, because I wanted to post them the um, little leaflet as well. And so I photocopied the article for my own reference and mailed them the original leaflet. Yep. But they sent me a reply back within one week of everything that was on their website. So I got this huge envelope and they said they would discuss it at their next panel meeting. And then nothing nothing happened for a long, long time until the end of January when I got a letter from them. So what, what time, what, this is in 2008 you sent the letter off? What month of 2008 um, around about? It would have been... November. November, okay. So it's still, rel- that's relatively quick for a body yes. like that, probably, yeah. And I truly did not believe that anything would happen. I, I was thinking about it well, you're a before skeptic. I came here, and I hadn't prepared myself for the result that, that we did get, but I think that it was just going to disappear and that I was going to think, hmm, it's nine months since I wrote to the, um, the panel. I wonder what they're doing about the sex yeah. magnets. So... It was a great shock and a delight to me to find out that it... There's a, gov- there's a functioning government body out there. Yes. And um, in, the, in the letter they sent me back, they said that the um, Century Mail people wanted to just put a disclaimer on their website. And that would have been that old thing of this may or yeah. may not... People say. Yes. So the, um, the panel said, no, no way. You must, you must remove it. So... That I thought they actually have some teeth. Mm. That's what I thought. That this it's panel, surprising. that while I was having Christmas and and um, travelling around and everything, they were actually contacting Century Mail saying, "Send us your proof." And Century Mail said, "We've got oodles of proof." But when they looked at it, there wasn't anything there to back up, particularly the part about increasing um, oxygen yeah. and that. Well, that's one of the things you'll find is in a lot of products, look, the way they do it, as you would know, they say um, supports, use terminology like that, very, that's very equivocal, and so um, therefore they can, they can wiggle out of it, like, you know, boost your immune system, what the hell does that even mean? Um, and so those are the kind of claims, whereas these guys actually specifically say it improves blood supply and oxygen supply, so they've made a very, they've made a testable claim, a claim that's easily shown to be true or false. So if that's a claim they, can, they should be able to provide evidence for, but obviously they couldn't. That's right. And that's yes. probably because it defies all the laws of modern physics and biology and biochemistry that we know of. That's probably why. I know. I wonder. They may turn around one day and resell that as an attractive fridge magnet yeah. holder to hold your bills and, and your bet appointment for your cat or whatever. That's right. Because that's basically all it is. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's just a plastic-covered yeah, yeah. magnet. 
And I would be curious as to whether or not it would actually hold up on a fridge. Yeah, well, well, you weren't curious enough to buy one. No. So you weren't a true sceptic. You should have bought a few of them and had someone to try them out for you. No, <laughs> wouldn't want to give many of your money. No, I mean, that, that's the thing. And so the, the, the best thing about and why I wanted to talk to you is because in scepticism, we hear about all the, the big people, so the James Randys, the uh, Phil Plates, the Stephen Novellas, all those kind of the big the big people in scepticism. Uh, guy in the UK, Ben Goldacre, the bad uh, um, bad science runs bad science blog and so on, and they get a lot of publicity because they attack people and they point out the, the flaws. But this just shows that anyone, if they see something, certainly in Australia, I don't know how it works in other countries, but we have a body that you can actually write to, and, and action occurs, and you get a result and this is a massive fail on their part. I mean, your result, and we'll go through what they actually have to do now. So the upshot of this is what have Century Mail, the company that sells this product, have to have, to have done now through the process of the complaints resolution? Well, they have to put the retraction, which had to be a certain size, certain height. It had to be sent to the um, complaints resolution panel for their approval before they could put it on their website. It has to be on there for 60 days. It must be able to be viewed without scrolling down. And I can tell you, having had a look at it, it's the first thing you see. I did too. It's lovely. And then they have to send their retraction to all the people who bought the product. That is, I mean, that in itself is huge. I mean, that's massively embarrassing. And even just the cost of doing that is going to hurt them a little bit as well. Yes. And then Reader's Digest, who were indirectly involved with it, because I do love my Reader's Digest, They must also print a retraction saying that they had included the leaflet or words to that effect in their mail out. Yeah. So. And put the retraction there too. Yes. And I mean, the, the thing about it, when you say a magazine or something you use does something dodgy, that actually ruins your faith in that, that, that magazine as well. So it's important for them to actually do that and say, okay, we're just, we're just ad- advertising, we're just advertising space. That, you know, they might not, we were t- talking before we started podcasting that. You know, they might not have the people to check into some of the things they sell, but maybe that's something they need to look at and they'll be more careful in the future. Yes, and I've often seen retractions in the paper, but the retraction is like on page 35, just before the horse racing or something, and it may have been a retraction that severely affected someone's business, their life, their family or whatever, but it isn't, isn't in a prominent spot that maybe people didn't get to finish reading the paper. And so I was really pleased that the Australian Complaints Resolution Panel, that they are very strict as to how far the um, attraction has to go. With Reader's Digest, I believe it must be sort of within the first nine pages or so. I'll plead ignorance here. I had no real understanding of how the Australian Complaints Resolution Panel works or what their... um, Authorities and their powers, but obviously it's uh, they have they have the authority to really get stuck into a company to force them to do that because I mean it's going to uh, without knowing the facts, but it, uh, there's no way this couldn't hurt business for them. It's on the front front of their webpage, so I'll put a link to it. You know, CenturyMail.com or .au, and it's the first thing you see. Now, are you really going to be trust trusting to buy other products off them over the internet off that? You know, I'd certainly say it's going to hit their business overall, not just not just that particular product, uh, it's going to hurt their overall business as well. And so, and so it should because, of course, that's not the only dodgy thing they're selling there. They've got all these other magnetic products that there's no evidence for that they work either. It's just no. the, the sex magnet is the most outrageously, obviously wrong of them all. But, yeah, it's going to hurt a lot. And I'll just... Um, so for people that are too lazy to go and uh, 
and actually look at the, the flyer, I'll, I'll read out their attraction. And the attraction they have to put, and this is again in um, bold red writing in a big red box in the front, it says, an advertisement for Sex Magnet, which we published in Reader's Digest magazine, should not have been published. The advertisement unlawfully made claims that our sex magnet product could have therapeutic benefits in relation to libido, blood flow, oxygen flow, sexual performance and sexual potency. A complaint about the advertisement was recently upheld by the Complaints Resolution Panel. The panel found that the claims made in the advertisement were unlawful and breached the Therapeutic Goods Advertising Code. The panel therefore requested that we publish this retraction. And then they've got a link to the panel's full text. So, it's... A massive win. You can't emphasise enough that this is a huge win and a massive fail on their part and will certainly at least make them... As we said before, what will happen is they, they will just make their claims less specific. I would actually put some money on the sex magnet reappearing within the next year but with less kind of claims and things like that. Like, people have said it helps and that kind of thing. So it'll be interesting... And they won't, they won't talk about a mechanism by which it could possibly work. Because certainly those magnetic pillows and things like that, they never try and talk about a mechanism by which it could work. The only ones I've ever heard people talk about is, oh, the, the, the iron in your blood is attracted to the magnets. Like, well, the iron in your blood is not ferrous iron. It's not attracted to magnets, you idiots. But anyway. <laughs> I've thought about it since, and I've wondered um, if uh, men were to have MRIs. Nobody ever thought about what could have possibly happened to them if well, that Well, of, of course. I mean, that's one of the obvious criticisms against it. If, if MRIs... You would, your body would be ripped apart by the magnetic field of an MRI if that could actually have any kind of effect. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's the, the classic way with pseudoscientists, especially in healthcare, when they take scientific-sounding terminology and make it sound scientific in order to sell a product. They, they don't care whether it works or not. All they care about is the end result, which is making money. There may be some true believers who sell this stuff, but, I mean, a, couple, a website like that, i got no doubt they're appealing it for the money-making. Oh, yes, they're... There's a factory somewhere that's made those, and it maybe the people who um, put the advertising with it, it may have originally been made as a fridge magnet, yeah. and it's got all mixed up. And it's, like, sex magnets. it's like the leftover Easter eggs that they remelt into the Santa Claus yeah. frames. And, uh, yeah. I'll obviously I'll put a link to the original uh, refer- uh, the original blog post by Harriet Hall and some of the comments there by people about the sex magnet were highly amusing. So, just before we wrap this up, Sandra, just tell us about the, the fantastic experience that you've actually had and, uh, through the whole process of it and, and how and how what a what a defining moment in a way it has been in your life. Even though it's such a small thing, but it's just made you feel empowered as being a part of the sceptical movement, I guess. Yeah. Well. My daughter actually rang me up to say that their letter had come from the um, panel because she was just as enthusiastic as I was. So I got her to open it up and read it out to me over the phone because I was at work. And we were just so excited. We couldn't believe it. I showed it to some people where I work. And, of course, a lot of people, their reaction is, oh, did you want to buy it? So you, you get all this get all this silly stuff. But I was on such a high and... I think I said before, I didn't believe that the that an Australian panel could have such teeth to be able to really bite into this and have something done about it. So I was very impressed with that. I um, then had to try to work out how to get on to the Swift Forum because nowadays it's all in separate people. So I, I um, found Harriet Hall and wrote to her and I just thought she would be interested in it. 
And she replied and said, could she put it on Swift? And I said yes. And then um, it appeared I was so excited. I was like a celebrity in my own mind because it was the first news that night on the Friday night in Australia. And Australian mum, single-handedly, blah, blah, blah. And so... um, after that then, and to read all the blogs yeah. and to see that everybody's comment was positive. Yeah. Some were very funny, but they were all positive. And that, to see also that some people said it was made them yeah. right about a product as well. Yeah, so and that's, that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you, is to say to people that you, even though you might not be a, a, a mainstream, you know, say Richard Saunders type Australian sceptic, you know, every kind of people's name that they associate with it, no. you can still have an effect. And actually a very significant effect. I mean, this is a, is a huge effect on this particular company and the dodgy product and the people that bought it in the first place too that, you know, hopefully won't ruin their placebo effect that they're getting from it. But, but if they've got, I mean, the other thing is if they've got real medical issues and they're doing this instead of going to get real medical help, you know, that's taking them away from actually having a real medical effect as well. So, um, and there could be underlying medical conditions that are causing these problems too. So, and they're not getting treatment, they're trying something else. So, you, you just don't necessarily know the effect, the positive effect you're having on people's lives as well. Yes. Well, one of the things I had said in my letter to the um, panel, and they actually repeated that, and it's in the literature I've given you, to the Century Mail people, where I said it was a con sold to desperate men who would be too embarrassed to return it for the ironclad money-back guarantee. Yeah. And this thing cost $39.95, yeah. and it was either $12.95 or $14.95, I can't remember, postage and handling. Yeah. So they, these companies, I know, they make a lot of their money from the postage and handling, that they give you the money back, yeah, but, but they keep it doesn't cost them that amount of money right. yeah, yeah. to actually make And actually, that's a good point that I hadn't thought of, because... Uh, that kind of thing hasn't been an issue in my life yet. But, of course, to buy it in the first place is a little bit embarrassing. Then to send it back saying it didn't work, yeah. possibly even more embarrassing. What kind of a loser are yeah, they? Yeah, right. <laughs> They're going to think you are. <laughs> I know, so I never thought of it that way. And, and, but as you said, like a lot of men be think, oh, I'll use this instead of going to the doctor, and you know, and we just have no idea. But, you know, it's that kind of thing. And so you just have no idea the positive effect you could be having. And the positive effect might just be telling someone, hey bad luck, this doesn't really work, deal with reality, and part of reality is facing up to a potential problem with reality, and that might be go seeing a doctor and seeing what they can offer you, what services, what drugs that might be working, and things like that, so yeah, who knows the spread you've had, but, but certainly I think your story is just one of, if you read some something that you read and go, this is rubbish, can't be true, well, all it really took you was to write that letter, and then everything else has been done by that panel. You haven't had to really supply the The burden is on them to provide evidence, not on you to prove it doesn't work. So actually so actually, you have basically had to take the time to write a letter and be annoyed at it, and then after that it's been kind of out of your hands and snowballed. So even the effort on your part wasn't huge, the investment wasn't huge, but the reward and the consequences have been massive in the end. So I think you're a good story for that. And as you said, if you've inspired other people to say that, hey, anyone can do this, that makes you a fantastic role model as well. I'm very, very happy at the outcome. I really am. No, that, well, that's, a, that's a great story. All right, well, we might wrap it up there. Yes, certainly. All right, Sandra, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Hi, I'm Alistair Tate 
host of the new bi-weekly podcast, The Pseudoscientists, the official podcast of the Young Australian Skeptics. Join Elliot Birch, Darley Breedis, Jason Ball, Jack Scanlon, Tay Rush and myself to hear what our generation have to say about quackery, science and the issues that concern us. Subscribe to our podcast located at youngozskeptics.com. Okay, so that was my interview with Sandra Quincy, and yeah, what an, what an awesome story and what a fantastic woman she is. Uh, yeah, the, the, the thing that I'm disclosing to Theo for the first time is that I've invested all of his inheritance in, uh, in the sex magnet, and so he's inadvertently praising a woman who's really bankrupted him before he gets his hand on all that money, so sorry about that, Theo, but it sounded like a good idea to me at the time. <laughs> Did you have personal experience about working? Well, <laughs> it's very difficult to tell because uh, women just follow me all the time anyway. <laughs> yeah, I don't think the old grannies count. <laughs> anyway, so that was, that you know, kudos to Sandra. You know, I met her for a coffee, and we had a good chat, and she's a fantastic woman. And I was really impressed with her um, efforts. And you know, so take from that: you, if you see something that's rubbish, you know, write a complaint to somebody. Uh, complaining does actually work, and if it's complaining in the name of good, then I'm all the more for it. Okay, so uh, moving along, a couple more sections we want to look at uh, in today's podcast. Um, first of all, we've gotten a few awesome comments, a couple of awesome emails from readers in the last couple in the last two weeks, and I just thought I'd read out a couple of them because essentially they are uh, ego boosting for us. It starts. So from Ben from Canberra, he said, Fantastic podcast, guys. I only just started listening to some of the older episodes yesterday. My God, I laughed my proverbial tits off listening to the one on Sanctimony, especially when the two of you went off air, inverted commas. By the way, you clearly have psychic abilities. How on earth did you know I was a monkey typing away aimlessly at my keyboard? Keep it up, good thanks. And i got to say, we were both extremely chuffed with that one because we thought we were hilarious and it was good to get some feedback that suggested we were right. Yeah, the trouble is too, irony can sometimes bite you on the bum and so I'm glad that one, one of our listeners... Well, we did say one. We did say at least one person would get it. Yeah. So maybe that's... Even though he says he's, a, he's one of the monkeys. And we just got another one uh, from Gwen from California. And she said, I love your podcast. This is a humorous way to learn how to combat logical fallacies. Laugh while you learn. I'm frequently involved in what I recognize as a bad argument, but never had the tools to answer them. I'm learning. I'm learning. Quadruple exclamation point. And she says, happy birthday to Darwin. And again, that's the type of thing that, you know, makes us chuffed and want to keep doing it is that, A, people are enjoying it, and B, if you're actually learning stuff as well. So that's fantastic. Well, both Theo and I are educators or have been educators, and the thing is that we had captive audiences while we were teaching uh, in, our, in our institutions. It's really, really nice to be out, out on the World Wide Web and to be able to communicate with people that we've never met, possibly will never meet, but to feel that some of our ideas are getting out there. And these ideas are not ours exclusively. Rather, we're promoting uh, a long-standing intellectual tradition and contributing to it in our own way. And uh, it's very pleasing to know that there are people out there that um, are not part of our classes or or part of compulsory groups that we could uh, uh, lecture at and you never quite know how your ideas are going across, but to find people who are sending comments like this back is very uh, important to us yeah. to shape what we're doing and to improve what we're doing. Yeah. 
So thank you for that. And more emails, the merrier. Uh, we love getting them, especially if you've got any uh, examples or ideas. If you if you see a clip on YouTube or anywhere that we can access, send it in because we can use that. You know, the more people that help us find clips, the better. Speaking of which, uh, thought I would we're going to do a little um, for the next couple of weeks and a couple of podcasts anyway. Do some spot that fallacies, and the reason why I want to do it is because. I've come across this audio that is so error-ridden for me to sit down and actually analyse it myself from start to finish would take me hours and hours and hours. Also, to listen to it over and over again uh, drives me insane. I'm going to guess most of you who are listening to this podcast have already heard about this, but if you haven't, I'll quickly reiterate it. It's to do with a broadcaster in the UK called Jenny Barnett, and she did a 40-50 minute uh, on-air talkback radio thing about vaccination and about how she's anti-vaccines and whatnot and wanted people of like minds to ring in. Ben Goldacre of badscience.net, who, again, I'm sure most of you are familiar with, posted that audio on his website. It kind of would have disappeared into the ether, but then the lawyers from her radio station requested it to get pulled down for violating copyright, um, which he did, but then all the bloggers around the blogosphere in the sceptical blogger land anyway got really annoyed and posted it everywhere, so now it's everywhere. Um, and so essentially, you know, Jenny's just been slammed by the sceptical groups around the world. Now, what I thought I would do, Ben did talk about this in some interviews I've heard where he said it'd be great for people to analyse it, and I've read a lot of analysis where people have looked at where she's factually incorrect and also refuted some of her arguments using, you know, different techniques, but no one's really identified a lot of the fallacies that she's used. So I thought we could use some of these clips for the next few episodes to do us kind of spot that fallacy, and what we'll do is uh, we'll play like five minutes of audio of it, and again, you need to, you know, get ready for this because it's pretty inane, and you guys can, and then the week ne- week after the next podcast, we'll talk about the fallacies we thought we saw, and you can kind of compare that to ones you thought you saw too. So if you want to use it as an opportunity to practice uh, identifying fallacies, that you can use this clip. You can obviously use the ebook of Humbug to try and help you spot them on their uh, contents. It's got the names of the fallacies and general descriptions of them. Go into the uh, you know the main contents to double check what you're doing. So this is essentially what we get our students to do too. Dad has not heard this at all, so I can't wait to see your reaction to this first five minutes because it is so bad. Essentially, it's just a stream of consciousness from an ignorant know-nothing who somehow managed to get on the air, and overall, I just say it's like an ill-informed paranoid rant with random non-secretur after non-secretur and just outright falsehoods. So in that sense, she's just a WTFer that you can just dismiss as being an ignorant WTFer, but there are some specific fallacies that I've uh, found certainly in these first five minutes, and that's why I'm going to put it out there. But I, it is too difficult for one mere mortal um, for me to, uh, you know, get into. But anyway, without further ado, prepare for some stupidity, courtesy of Jenny Barnett. It's cold, it's miserable, lots of us are snuffling, lots of us have got viruses, some of us will be affected by it, some of us won't. Um, Every single time we come round again to measles epidemic or infection rates rise in Europe, I have, my first thought is, I'm an independent individual human being. I have uh, raised a biological child and two logical children. Sometimes their responses to things were worse than others. Sometimes children around them had a response that was worse than mine. 
than my kids. The fact is, the notion that we're all the same and that you have to be inoculating children with this MMR jab, this debate is going to go on forever and ever. And always at the back of it, in my head, is, hold on a minute, there's a drug company that's making lots of money out of it. And I always get really anxious when I hear, the, you know, that now we've got uh, vanishing measles from Europe by 2010 may have been dashed by poor vaccination rates in a handful of countries. You cannot have your cake and eat it. You cannot be putting rubbish and carp in food endlessly and looking at the rise of asthma and not a, a, an obesity and then turn around and say look, what, look what's happening with measles you have to approach the whole thing at the health of our children and the health of our society now back in the day and that's an expression I've learned from my nearest damn it's son back in the day children got measles children got mumps I'm not suggesting I am not suggesting that we go backwards where some children, um, you know, where we have one in 15 children die of it. And that one person in 15 is the one that we have to be looking at and wondering why and, and dealing with it. But if, as a human being, you decide that you do not want to give your child a vaccination, you should, in a democracy, have that right to say no. There are some children, whether you like it or whether you don't, who have a response to that triple jabbing that is not good for them. We have evidence, however much people say we don't, we have evidence that if a child's immune system is weak, my daughter was one of them, she was very asthmatic as a child, she could not have received that triple vaccine. She couldn't have done it. So I made a calculated decision that I didn't want to go there. And it isn't a decision that's made easily. It's a lonely decision. If you're not part of the herd, if you're not mooing with the other cows or barring with the other sheep, if you're wanting to stand alone, it's a very lonely business standing under a tree in a field all on your own saying, I don't want to do that. So I want you to phone me and tell me why you decided against the vaccine and how you're coping with people saying, see, you're the reason. You are the reason that we haven't banished measles. I had that said to me by a doctor in Canada. You haven't had your child vaccinated. You're, he, left, he left me in the kitchen. He blamed me for the whole of the measles epidemic. 08456060973. Why didn't you have your child uh, vaccinated? How are you coping with the fact that people don't like you for it? How do you like it? When, when you are, when the study is documenting that 12,000 cases of European measles in the two years spanning 2006 and 2007 means that we are um, one of the handful of countries in Britain that are, are not doing it right. Well, maybe. Maybe there's all, all sorts of other figures that have been withheld from us. And I don't know what they are because they've been withheld. Measles is a contagious infection caused by a virus. Measles was once common, but because of immunization, it's now fortunately becoming very rare. I want to know from some kind of expert what measles is and what is in the vaccine and why people have a reaction to it. And really my question is, what is wrong with childhood illnesses? Is it to hark back to the first hour because we don't have parents at home taking our, looking after our children? What's going on? Is there something wrong with having mumps? Is there something that, you know, most people aren't that one in 15. 
So if you did not have your child vaccinated, why? 0845 Text me. If you decided against having that triple M and are now dealing with people saying that you are responsible for the, ra the rise in measles, text me on 84850. Oh my God, again, like you haven't heard that before, so first impressions? Well, it takes your breath away and it, it, it's so fast fallacy upon fallacy that you you've just identified one and there's another one coming along and a multiple fallacy at the same time but it reminds me her manner and her style reminds me of um, uh, one of Clive James's uh, comments about Jermaine Greer in her later books not so much in the famous book the book she became famous for the female unit but the later books um, she argues, he, he says, exclusively from, from the emotions. So whatever emotional state she's in at any particular time, she produces words that reflect that emotional state and there's no actual reasoning behind uh, uh, what she says or writes about. So, and, and, and that woman struck me as that kind, that she was self-contradictory, uh, particularly in terms of, you know, the... What's wrong with letting one in 15 children die, you know? Yeah. Um, and uh, she, like, she she, uh, she claimed essentially to be talking from a state of knowledge but then said, I'd like an expert to tell me what measles is. Mm, yeah. Now, if she's at that level of knowledge, uh, and it's showing it as a challenge as though people can't, can't do that, but yeah. Well, so so it borders on madness. It, well, that's why I said stream of consciousness. It's like all your own inner thoughts coming out without any self moderation and or planning about what you're going to say. And so, don't get too hung up on that. There are definitely some specific fallacies there that you can identify. Um, some are easier than others, and and even just listen to it. Then you, Dad, came up with a couple that I hadn't even thought of. So no doubt you will come up with some more. Another thing I thought about would be to. That one of her arguments is about the freedom of choice thing. Now, you can very easily rebut that using one of our humbug hunting techniques that we've got on our website. So if you look on the website, we've got some techniques there that are not fallacies, but some techniques like spinning another hypothesis and things like that. So you could, there's one you can definitely use to straight away just point out how what a ridiculous statement that is about the whole freedom of choice thing because we live in a democracy. Um, so I won't give that away yet. We'll talk about that next week. So again... Have a listen to that. See if you can spot some of the fallacies. If you want to write down what you think she said and why it's a fallacy on the website and on the comments of this podcast, go for it. If you want to email us in or if you just want to do it in your head. Um, so, yeah, and, and that's that'll be a good, fun way to pr practice honing your skills to look for the specific fallacies um, that she has made. And don't worry, it won't be the last of it because the entire 44-odd minutes is filled with fallacies. But, yeah, enjoy. It's, uh, it's There's a lot to choose from there. Okay, until next week, uh, goodbye from me, Theo. And goodbye from Jeff. And we will see you back with another podcast in two weeks. So that was a rebroadcast episode of Hunting Humbug 101. For more information about the show and the book, Humbug the Skeptic's Field Guide to Spotting Fallacies and Deceptive Arguments, head to www.skepticsfieldguide.net. <laughs>